The Foray tribe has long lived in isolation deep in the mountains and forests of the Okapa district of Papua New Guinea. Their civilization and culture has remained untouched by the developed world. Before the late 1950s, they had no real concept of modern technology or medicine. They believed that illnesses were caused by spirits and sorcery. And one illness was particularly gruesome. As its latest victim, a woman, convulsed on the ground in the Foray village, the elders gathered to discuss. They'd seen the sickness before. It was a sorcerer's curse, one that was annihilating members of their tribe one by one. They called it Guru. The woman continued to shake with uncontrollable tremors. Before long, she'd be bedridden, unable to speak, move, or control her bowels. Though unresponsive, she would occasionally launch into unsettling fits of laughter. This symptom gave rise to another name for the disease, (laughs) the Laughing Death. The elders did all they knew how to do, make the woman comfortable in her dying days. Meanwhile, the men of the tribe tried to hunt down the sorcerer responsible for the curse. But even if they found him, nothing could save the woman. She, like all those before her, would succumb to the incurable Kuru. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on Kuru, also known as the Laughing Death, named for how its victims spontaneously laughed as they withered away. This week, we'll discuss how Kuru developed in the isolated Foray tribe. We'll learn how their way of life clashed with the Western world as researchers and doctors from all over the planet raced to understand the disease and find a cure. Next week, we'll explore how researchers competed with one another to find how Kuru developed and try to stop its deadly spread. Before 1940, the roughly 12,000 members of the Foray tribe in Papua New Guinea dressed in grass skirts and animal bones. They lived alone in the mountains. Their culture was built around a belief in sorcery and the afterlife. According to the Foray, 
a person has five souls. After death, these souls embarked on a farewell tour until they were reunited with the spirits of their ancestors. They believed the fastest way for the souls of their loved ones to reach the great beyond was for those they left behind to eat their bodies. It was more respectful than leaving them to be consumed by worms. According to Kuru researcher Dr. Michael Alpers, by eating their dead, they were able to show their love and express their grief. But death wasn't the final destination for all foray. They believed that some ghosts and spirits stayed on Earth to wreak havoc. They were to blame whenever the living got sick. The foray sacrificed livestock to these ghosts in exchange for better health. However, one sickness couldn't be solved with offerings to the dead, Kuru. Though it's unclear when exactly the disease began, at its peak, it killed around 400 tribe members a year. And with a population of around 12,000 at that time, that was a huge swath of people. It was an epidemic. Kuru means trembling or fear. The disease predominantly targeted women and children. Since the outbreak began before the foray had modern record-keeping, let's explore how the symptoms might have progressed for a hypothetical female member of the foray tribe named Kayanamba. The first symptom was a persistent headache. Kayanamba and her husband, Cassis, waited for it to pass. But within months, her posture and coordination deteriorated. She needed to lean on a stick to support herself. Her extremities and head started involuntarily jerking, and tremors became more extreme as the months went on. It grew hard for her to hold her young children. According to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders, a tremor is an involuntary rhythmic muscle contraction leading to shaking movements in the body. Everyone has tremors to some degree. If you hold out your hand, chances are you'll notice your fingers have the tiniest shake to them. This is called a physiologic tremor and is perfectly healthy. However, a tremor that starts off small but gradually worsens can be a sign of something dangerous taking place in the brain. Similar to Kayanamba's shakes, essential tremors usually begin in the hands. They can slowly spread across the right or left side of the body in the form of muscle spasms. They may also manifest in a person's head, causing an involuntary repeated yes or no motion. Essential tremors were once thought to be genetic, caused by an inherited gene mutation. However, some scientists now believe it might stem from a mild degeneration in the movement control center of the brain. Which is all to say, when a person first experiences tremors, we aren't really sure of the cause. As for Kayanamba, her condition was getting worse. Her husband knew that she'd been struck by Kuru. Her time on this earth was limited. In order to save her, he had to figure out how she'd gotten the disease. The foray thought that if their loved ones suffered from Kuru, it was because of a wicked spell cast by a sorcerer. The spell went as follows. The sorcerer obtained a part of his victim's clothes, nail clippings, hair, partially consumed food or excrement, anything that came from their body. 
He created a koru bundle by packing the clothing or food with leaves. He then submerged the bundle in a nearby swamp. The sorcerer would shake it each day until he saw kuru tremors appear in his victim. Once a victim was struck, the process to find the sorcerer responsible was just as complicated. To save his wife, Cassus needed to perform a divination ritual. Cassus and his family collected water from various areas of the village. He then fed the samples to his wife, Kayanamba. Whichever sample made her vomit was the spring the sorcerer lived closest to, a form of mystical sonar. Unfortunately for Cassus, none of the water samples had any effect on Kayanamba. So instead, he tried a different identification ritual. He took his wife's hair clippings and put them in one of two bamboo cylinders. He then stuffed a possum into the second cylinder. He shook the pieces of bamboo and then threw the possum into a fire. The family chanted the name of a supposed sorcerer as the possum cooked. If its liver didn't burn, that was a sign that they'd correctly identified the culprit. Through this ritual, Cassus found a suspect. He tried to bribe the sorcerer to release the curse, but the sorcerer denied that he had anything to do with Kayanamba's ailments. Cassus didn't believe him. Instead, he resorted to the only other option he had, a vicious ritual called Tukabu. Cassus and the men of the family waited until their alleged sorcerer was asleep and broke into his home. The sorcerer's eyes shot open. He heard footsteps rushing in. Before long, he was snatched off the bed and wrestled to the ground. He might have caught a glimpse of Cassus's face before his teeth pierced through the accused sorcerer's trachea. Kayanamba's family smashed the man's bones with stones and clubs and grinded his genitalia. The brutal attack stopped once the sorcerer's screams did. Takabu is a ceremonial revenge killing. As Kuru death soared, it became a part of the tribe's way of life as much as the disease itself. With no medicine or healing spells, revenge felt like the only option. In fact, there was a revenge killing for nearly every case of Kuru. It became the second highest cause of death, second only to Kuru itself. Interestingly enough, revenge killings balanced foray demographics. Whenever a woman died of Kuru, before long, a male sorcerer would be murdered. In theory, the death of the sorcerer should stop the illness in its tracks. Kayanamba's curse should have been lifted. But as was often the case, she didn't get better. Four months after her initial headache, she lost her ability to walk. Her speech became unintelligible, and she couldn't stop crying. Compulsive weeping might have been a normal reaction to her deteriorating physical state, in actuality, it was a sign that Kuru was coming to its final stages. The disease caused its victim to lose control over their emotions. Soon, uncontrollable cackles erupted from Kayanamba as the tremors reverberated through her body. Within a year of her initial headache, 
She was bedridden and in a comatose state. There are a number of things that could send someone into a coma. Brain disorders, tumors, lack of oxygen, and diabetes among them. In some cases, comas are triggered by brain swelling, which suffocates blood vessels and blocks the flow of blood and oxygen to the brain. Or in the case of a burst aneurysm, it's not a lack of blood, but an excess that leads to inflammation and eventual coma. Patients are rendered unable to eat and occasionally breathe, reliant on IVs and machines to keep them alive. The foray didn't have technology like feeding tubes and ventilators. Within days of entering her coma, Kayanemba's starving body surrendered, and she passed away. Like many of the deaths, it wasn't Kuru that killed Kayanemba, but its symptoms. Starvation, malnutrition, pneumonia, and infected bed sores. Her family mourned her death. Cassus was now the head of yet another motherless family in the tribe. But his nightmare wasn't over. Soon enough, as was often the case, Kuru struck his children as well. And the cycle would happen again. Cassus performed the same rituals to identify a sorcerer, and he went to the same lengths to avenge their lives. As the death tolls rose, so did the number of orphans in the foray community. Mothers were dying of Kuru, while fathers who were suspected of sorcery were killed. Meanwhile, the grieving children were left alone to hopefully be raised by a new family, but not all orphans were accepted. Many died of malnutrition. The plague of Kuru spread far beyond the disease, leaving the downtrodden village in its wake. The foray lived in fear that a sorcerer would come and curse them. To prevent someone from casting the spell, women hid and buried their bodily waste. But that didn't always protect them. They were powerless. Then, in the early 1940s, a mysterious new people arrived in their mountain village, Australian colonists. But it appeared the sorcery of Kuru would stump even the Australian science and medicine. Coming up, is Kuru actually all in the foray people's heads? Now back to the story. In the early 20th century, a disease called Kuru killed off hundreds of women and children in the Foray tribe. Isolated in the mountains of Papua New Guinea, they believed that the condition was caused by sorcery. Nothing they did seemed to stop it. Starting in the 1940s, the Australian government began expanding into the quote-unquote uncharted hills of Papua New Guinea. By the early 1950s, they had stationed officials in the mountain's tribal villages. It wasn't long before they came across the foray. At first, the Australians were met with skepticism and responded in turn with sneers and self-righteousness. The Aussies felt a sense of superiority. They assumed the foray needed to change their primitive lifestyle. But the foray weren't just potential students. They were potential laborers. Here in the middle of the forest was a wealth of men to help the Australians build roads and further their colonizing efforts. 
In return for their service, the Australians taught the foray about hygiene and urged them to give up warfare, their belief in sorcery, and cannibalism. And it didn't take long for the Australians to notice how many women and children were afflicted with Kuru. A patrol officer named Arthur Carey was one of the first to observe the disease. In 1951, he noted that the foray men generally married younger women. The tribe told him that the younger the bride, the more time she'd have to bear children before being diagnosed with Kuru. In August 1953, Australian John MacArthur arrived in the foray community looking to build a road to a nearby city. One day he found a small girl resting by a fire. Her head jerked from side to side as she violently shivered. The girl was dying of Kuru. A member of the foray tribe told MacArthur what would come next. The shivering would continue. She would stop eating and die in the coming weeks. It was the curse. Some reports state that in 1955, MacArthur met with a member of the Australian Department of Public Health named Dr. Vincent Zegas. MacArthur told Zegas about the cursed girl. The disease piqued the doctor's interest. According to Zegas's memoir, Three months later, he was taken to a foray settlement where he met with a female Kuru patient. She was roughly 30 years old, but the disease had aged her beyond her years. She stared blankly at Zegas from the corner of her hut. Her muscles were withered, her head and body trembled. She wasn't even able to stand and greet him. In spite of her clearly deteriorated state, Zegas wasn't convinced that the woman was afflicted by a medical condition at all. He, like many other Australian officials, believed that the disease was a psychosomatic illness. Therapist Dr. Marilyn Wedge defines psychosomatic illness as an illness in which the unconscious mind produces physical symptoms in the absence of disease. In other words, They're all in the patient's heads. Psychosomatic illnesses can manifest as heart palpitations or, less commonly, paralysis and convulsions. Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan stated, almost any symptom we can imagine can become real when we are in distress. Tremor, fatigue, speech impairments, numbness, anything. It's not fully understood how the body creates these symptoms. We do know that MRI scans show distinct differences in the brain activity of healthy people and those suffering from psychosomatic disorders. As O'Sullivan stated, something is happening in the brain, but we don't understand it yet. Australian officials believe that Kuru patients were imagining their deadly symptoms. It wasn't sorcery that was killing the foray, but the fear of sorcery manifesting itself as Kuru. Knowing how strong belief was in the Foray tribe, Zegas wondered if he could fake his own counter-magic to get the woman to walk. He told the Foray that he was going to burn the bad spirit inside her, freeing her from its clutches. He rubbed a warming lotion on her legs and stomach and ordered her to walk. She couldn't. He commanded her again. Then the woman stood, but she struggled to balance on her weak legs. She violently trembled. 
the notorious involuntary laughter that Kuru was known for barked from her mouth. Ziga's demonstration wasn't working. Even though his fake magic didn't help, his opinion that Kuru was psychological hadn't changed. When a patient was brought to the hospital in the Papua New Guinea town of Kayanantu, Zegas diagnosed Kuru as acute hysteria in an otherwise healthy woman. According to the American Psychological Association, hysteria is an outdated term used to describe any psychological illness marked by paralysis, loss of sensation, hallucinations, emotional outbursts, and blindness. When someone experienced these symptoms without any physical cause, they were thought to have hysteria. Like Kuru, hysteria has a long history of diagnosis in women. The word itself comes from the Greek term husteros, meaning uterus. While the term was officially retired in the 1980s, according to the McGill Office for Science and Society, hysteria was basically the medical explanation for everything that men found mysterious or unmanageable in women. Though wrong and ignorant, Zegas's diagnosis was based on the leading medical knowledge of the time, and the foray didn't have any better information to offer. They all understood that communicable diseases could be passed to others, say, by sharing food and drinks. But Kuru didn't spread like a common cold. Nearly all its victims were women or children. If it was contagious, why were men largely immune? Not to mention, none of the Australian doctors contracted it. Only the foray and a few isolated individuals in other nearby tribes got Kuru. The inexplicable contagion stumped the Australian physicians. As Dr. Zegas noted in his memoir, Laughing Death, the untold story of Kuru, a foray tribesman told him, you, doctor, can do all sorts of things we can't, but you don't understand sorcery of Kuru. If she had been sick, you would have cured her, but she died. Therefore, it was sorcery. The foray had a point. The Australians didn't understand Kuru. For all they knew, maybe it was sorcery. In 1955, emergency medical practitioner Frank Earle was working with the Australian patrol in Papua New Guinea. After he encountered seven Kuru cases and heard of 13 recent deaths, he developed his own theory. He believed Kuru was caused by a type of encephalitis. Encephalitis is an inflammation of the brain, usually the result of a viral infection like herpes simplex virus encephalitis, or HSE. It's the same herpes virus responsible for cold sores. If the infection travels to the brain, it attacks the temporal lobe responsible for memory and speech and the frontal lobe responsible for emotions. HSE starts off with mild flu-like symptoms. However, as days pass, a patient may experience confusion. The virus eats away at frontal lobe tissue and the patient's behavior becomes more erratic. A week or two later, they drop to the floor and convulse. Immediate diagnosis and treatment is key to surviving HSC with no permanent neurological damage. 
Other types of encephalitis can cause similar symptoms, along with speech impairments, lack of muscle coordination, and comas, just like Kuru. Frank Earl wasn't able to verify this theory himself. By 1956, he had left the foray patrol to care for his wife, who'd come down with an unspecified illness. Dr. Zegas continued his work. He was also finally having doubts about his previous hysteria diagnosis. As he'd watched Kuru kill over and over again, he'd finally realized he was dealing with something real. And now, he felt that it was clearly neurological. According to the World Health Organization, neurological disorders are diseases of the central and peripheral nervous system. This includes conditions that affect the brain, spinal cord, muscles, and autonomic nervous system. Much like Kuru, nervous system damage could manifest as a lack of coordination and tremors. However, Zegas couldn't figure out how the foray were getting infected in the first place. And if he couldn't find a cause, he could never treat or stop the spread of Kuru. From 1956 to 1957, Zegas tested several theories. He learned that a copper sulfate deficiency could cause similar symptoms. But copper sulfate supplements didn't stop or slow the disease. He also theorized that Kuru could be MVE, or Murray Valley Encephalitis. The rare disease is spread through mosquito bites. While most people bitten by an MVE-carrying insect have few to no symptoms, a small proportion develop encephalitis. About 14 days after MVE infection, a person may experience fevers, headaches, and muscle aches. These symptoms can progress to seizures and delirium. Zegas sent a Kuru-infected brain and 26 blood samples to virologists in Melbourne, Australia for testing. In March 1957, he received the results. There were no traces of MVE nor any other infection. But Zegas didn't give up. He gained a new team member, Dr. Daniel Carlton Gaiduszek, an American virologist. Gaiduszek was an excitable, talkative man who quickly became a leading figure in Kuru research. Gaiduszek called Kuru an astonishing illness that can only be read with skepticism. It was his primary focus, maybe because he knew that the doctor who figured out Kuru would make history. He meticulously studied the blood and brains of Kuru victims, performing autopsies on his kitchen table at all hours of the day. After Ziga showed him two women with Kuru, Gaiduszek noted... The tremors and blurred speech all pointed to a chronic neurological disorder. Fixed and pained faces and slow, clumsy, voluntary motion, apparently in an attempt to overcome tremors, were prominent also. While he wasn't able to find any definitive answers, Gaiduszek strongly suspected that Kuru was a central nervous system issue. Our nervous system is teeming with trillions of neurons, specific cells responsible for interpreting and communicating signals to and from the brain. Sensory neurons are responsible for our five senses. For example, 
If you touch a hot stove, the sensory neurons allow you to feel the heat and pain in your fingertips. Then your motor neurons take over and whip your hand back to prevent damage. They carry out orders from the brain to move and contract our muscles. And not just in our arms or legs, but also those that allow us to breathe, talk, and swallow. Certain diseases can damage neurons and cause muscle weakness, contractions, slurred speech, and shortness of breath. Unlike other cells in the body, neurons cannot repair themselves, and the damage is often permanent. For instance, impaired neurons can lead to Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's causes head and hand tremors and impaired balance. These symptoms begin on one side of the body. Within months or years, a tremor that starts in the right hand may spread up the entire arm to the chest and then the whole left side. It's possible that, like Parkinson's, impaired brain neurons were at the root of Kuru. But this wasn't Gaidushek's only new theory. Because Kuru only affected women and children, he believed it was heterofamilial, meaning that it was passed down from mother to child, generation after generation. But he had no way of confirming these hypotheses. Every foray brain autopsy and blood sample he examined appeared normal. It was as if Kuru just appeared with no cause or reason. Gaidushek and Zegas wanted to solve Kuru's mysteries on their own. But by 1957, they admitted they needed outside help. That year, they told the world about Kuru and launched a scientific race for a cure. Coming up, new researchers arrive in Papua New Guinea. Now, back to the story. For generations, Kuru plagued Papua New Guinea's foray tribe. In 1957, two doctors named Carlton Gaidushek and Vincent Zegas introduced Kuru to the wider world in an effort to find a cure for the deadly illness. On November 14, 1957, they published their research in the New England Journal of Medicine. Newspapers and magazines dubbed the mysterious condition the Laughing Death. Zegas felt that this term was a hideous misnomer, but it was attention-grabbing. It sold papers and spread awareness. This brought in excited researchers, eager to discover the cause of Kuru, and hopefully a cure. In 1961, anthropologists Robert Glass and Shirley Lindenbaum arrived in Papua New Guinea to study the condition. The husband and wife team moved to Wanatabe, a village in the South Foray community with the highest rates of infection. They focused on the family's structures and history of the Foray. Initially, they agreed with Gaidushek's theory that Kuru was inherited and wanted to prove that it was passed down from mother to child. However, Lindenbaum and Glass uncovered that the tribe didn't have a traditional definition of family. A foray household wasn't necessarily biologically related. Instead, kin chose one another. For instance, someone who immigrated from another village could take on certain community responsibilities, 
In time, if they showed that they were committed to their new group, they would be called brother. One could also join a family through a ritual of sharing food when the sun was directly overhead. The foray also took the term brothers in arms literally. If two men served together in war, they were officially kin. This completely undermined Gaidushek's theory that Kuru was passed down genetically. The infected women and children weren't always biological mothers, sons, or daughters. There was no support for the existence of a theoretical Kuru gene. Additionally, Lindenbaum and Glass traced the birth of the disease. While the tribe didn't have any written record of their past, they had a great and detailed oral history. The older foray provided first-hand accounts of Kuru's emergence in the 1930s. It was a fairly recent affliction. Since Kuru was seemingly new, it was highly unlikely that all of the victims had descended from one Kuru-infected person in the 1930s. But while Lindenbaum and Glass's research undermined the leading hypotheses about Kuru's cause, it also offered promising new theories. These clues appeared when the foray opened up to the anthropologists about their cannibalistic rituals. According to Lindenbaum and Glass, women in the tribe traditionally removed the deceased's brain and cooked it with ferns. The flesh was often prepared immediately after death, but sometimes they buried the corpse for a few days. It was thought that the flesh needed some time to decompose for flavor. The maggots they unearthed along with the body were served as a delicacy. As part of the ritual, women sometimes sucked the marrow from bones or ground them down to be cooked and eaten with vegetables. Every part of the body was consumed, except the gallbladder, which was too bitter. Mostly women ate the brains of their loved ones. They believed that only their bodies were strong enough to handle the spirit that still resided in the flesh. While elderly men occasionally consumed the departed, typically the muscles, healthy men usually didn't. They feared it would weaken them. Mothers also gave their children small bits of the body because they believed that human flesh had regenerative properties. Women and children were the only ones who regularly practiced cannibalism, and they were also the most common victims of Kuru. The details started to add up. Even the timeline supported this new theory. According to Lindenbaum and Glass, the foray began practicing cannibalism no earlier than the start of the 1900s. Prior to that, men lived separately from the women. When it was time to eat, they feasted on the best parts of pigs, lizards, and other animals. Women and children were left with the entrails and insects. But at the dawn of the 20th century, the foray population was growing. Overhunting left even less meat for the women and children to consume. Theoretically, this was when they began eating the dead. At the same time, Kuru developed. In fact, the foray told Lindenbaum and Glass that the first Kuru victims were eaten by women and children. Correlation, however, does not equal causation. While their theory seemed to make sense, 
the researchers still had no idea why eating the dead would lead to Kuru. Certain toxins can enter the body through contaminated food. For instance, Staphylococcal aureus bacteria, also known as staph infection, is one of the most common causes of food poisoning. Staph food poisoning, like many foodborne illnesses, lasts a couple of days. It causes diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, or in more severe cases, dehydration and headaches. But Kuru wasn't a simple case of food poisoning. For one thing, many foodborne illnesses pass quickly with no long-term effects. And staph contains detectable bacteria. When Zegas tested Kuru brain samples for Murray Valley encephalitis, there were no signs of any infectious agent. An infectious agent that would theoretically have to be eaten and consumed in mortuary cannibalism. But if such a toxin didn't exist, then how could eating the dead be harmful? For this reason, Gaidushek didn't put much stock in Lindenbaum and Glass's research. He had other doubts as well. Thanks to pressure from the Australian government, the foray had almost entirely abandoned cannibalism by about 1960. But new Kuru cases continued to appear. In Gaidushek's mind, this completely undermined the cannibalism theory. Ideally, even failed hypotheses can be useful to researchers as they can shut down a fruitless avenue for study. But in this case, the doctors were out of leads and Kuru was still spreading and killing. And the 4A people were running out of time. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, Geidershek continues his investigation and discovers an entirely new infectious agent that turns all virological science on its head. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Brandon Rizzuto with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 